Welcome to the Legal LGBTQ Plus podcast. My name is Shane Filcher. I use all pronouns, and I am the executive director of the LGBT Bar Association and Foundation of Greater New York. I want to remind our listeners that the views expressed on our podcast are not an appropriate substitute for legal advice and may or may not reflect the views of the Bar Association and or its foundation. This month, we're taking a look at necessary reforms to the criminal legal system, both in New York State and nationwide. Returning to the podcast once again is Richard Sainz. Richard uses he, him pronouns and is a senior attorney and the criminal justice and police misconduct strategist at Lambda Legal, the oldest and largest national legal organization committed to achieving full recognition of the civil rights of LGBTQ plus people and those living with HIV. He is the project manager of Protected and Served 2022 Lambda Legal's groundbreaking community survey on the experiences of LGBTQ plus people and people living with HIV within the criminal legal system. Richard was counsel of record in a successful challenge to Missouri's Department of Corrections freeze frame policy denying appropriate health care to transgender people in his custody. Richard was co-author of an amicus brief urging the United States Supreme Court to allow presentation of evidence that anti-gay bias was a factor in some jurors' decision to sentence the man to death. His legislative work includes New York State's Gender Identity, Respect, Dignity, and Safety Act, which we'll be discussing today. His work has been featured in the Washington Post, NBC News, USA Today, Newsweek, and The Advocate. In 2016, he served as a panelist at the White House LGBTQ HIV Criminal Justice Briefing. He has received numerous accolades within the profession, including our prestigious Community Excellence Award in 2022. Richard, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for, for having me. I'm very excited to be talking about Protected and Served and also to talk about some of the other legal issues impacting our community members within the criminal legal system. Wonderful. Well, let's jump right in. You were one of the three co-authors of the Protected and Served report, but I understand that this wasn't the first such report at Lambda Legal. Could you give us kind of a quick overview of the history of these investigations? Sure. So Protected and Served is a nationwide community survey that Lambda Legal first did in 2012. Um, You can find the 2012 report, uh, uh, along with the the new report, at protectedandserved.org. This is a microsite that we hope to continue to update with um, new materials that we get related to our findings of of the current survey. Um, And I would love to invite everyone to, to check it out, to read the report, and to share it. Protected and Served, the 2012 version um, was a nationwide survey where we asked people to to talk about their interactions with the criminal legal system. And I think the main question that we were trying to answer in the 2012 survey was, does government misconduct, bias, and discrimination exist in the criminal legal system? I think it's the obvious answer, and I I know um, a lot of our community members, myself included, just have personal stories and our own anecdotes about those experiences. But this was one of the often cited reports that talks about the high rates of interaction that our community members have with the police, the incarceration of LGBTQ people in, in prison, as well as people who have been in jail. And that survey asked questions about interactions with 
school safety officers. So we, we ask these questions to really paint the picture of like, how does our community interact with the criminal legal system and kind of walk you through it? You know, as, as I said, you know, there's the, the questions around what happens in school with our community members and policing of LGBTQ people in schools. Um, what happens if you are stopped by police or if you go to police to ask for help? What happens in the court systems and, and the experiences of, of community members in the court systems? So the 2012 um, report, those findings have been cited by a number of community organizations and also the U.S. Department of Justice because it's one of the few resources out there on this particular issue. When we were planning to launch the 2022 survey, we wanted to go deeper into what those experiences and those interactions were, and also ask questions about the level of trust our community members have in these different institutions. We reached out to a number of organizations and advocates, in particular um, sex worker advocates, because we wanted to include questions about the experiences of LGBTQ sex workers and people living with HIV. And something that we did different in with the 2022 community survey was that we were able to get participants who were incarcerated or detained in prisons um, or jails at the time they took the survey to respond to a paper survey that had more limited questions that were specific to their experiences while detained and also in the court system. So there, there is a difference between the 2012 survey and the report and the current one because it looks at these issues with a I would say with the with the magnifying glass and ask the more in-depth questions. And I think the findings are really interesting and I'm I'm happy to be be sharing those today. Thank you for that overview. Before we jump in specifically into the findings, I just want to share a few of the numbers, if I may, about the survey. I saw online that there are over 2,546 survey participants. And even though they came from all 50 states, over 12% were from here in New York. So New York really has a strong voice in this conversation. And the diversity of their participants is really amazing. And I can understand now how that came to fruition after hearing your discussion about how many groups you reached out to and working with people who are currently incarcerated. It's really amazing how much work went into this to pull such a, a diverse sampling of our community. Great. And, and thank you for mentioning that. I, I should say this is a, a sample of our community. And we go into it more about ways to talk about our findings and the, the data from, from the, um, the survey is that this isn't representative of every LGBTQ person or per, uh, people living with HIV. It's more of a sample. Uh, folks who are, are using this data can talk about of the people who took this survey, these were their responses, these were their experiences. I should also mention that we would not have been able to conduct a community survey that was so intentional about reaching all of our community members, including those who are detained, if not for our partnership with Black and Pink National. Black and Pink National is a, a national abolitionist organization 
They work on behalf of LGBTQ people and people living with HIV. They do incredible work advocating for our community members on the inside. Um, and, and it was uh, a pleasure to, to be able to work with them on this project. I also want to just thank the support from the Leonard Litz um, LGBTQ Foundation for underwriting this project. You know, one of, one of the things I, I have discovered in working in the criminal legal space is that sometimes it's not one of the top three or even top five priorities of LGBTQ organizations or HIV organizations. And I hope this resource shows our community members and LGBTQ and HIV organizations that this is such an important issue and numerous issues are, are under the umbrella term of cr criminal legal system. And that this, that our report gives some insight into what are the issues, what are the experiences, and how can you incorporate these, these issues into the work that folks have, uh, are currently doing? Well, one of the issues that you touched on was over-policing, and that continues to, and even though this is a sample of the community, over-policing continues to impact the entire community. Would you like to start there? Uh, sure, and and I think for a number of our community members, that is also sometimes the the their first interaction with the criminal legal system. You know, if you are stopped by a police officer on the street, or, you know, even within schools where school safety officers, it's difficult to tell are they a police officer or not. So we we actually use the term law enforcement to to capture you know the different types of of law enforcement officers that our um, community members interact with. And with with policing, and I, I should note one one of the the cool cool things with the report is that we include a glossary section. And as you read through the report, you'll see that we try to define some of the terms we use both within the report and also in the glossary section, because they, some, some of the terms and ideas might be new to some folks who are going through through the report. So one thing at least the legal that we have also had to do is think about how do we use certain phrases and what how can we be more intentional about one focusing the issue on what the what the harm is and who is the actor doing the harm for example one thing that we have tried to do is to talk about policing and policing you know we don't say over policing and this is a, a, a change because i mean over policing makes sense it's like that's a lot of, a lot of surveillance a lot of interaction but it also in some ways, assumes that there's a level of policing that we're okay with, and 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 I think I want to put that question out there for for folks listening, and also as you engage with the report of thinking like these are different things within the criminal legal system. What are we comfortable with? What are we okay with? And I think it's part of the larger discussion of how we think about what does reform look like, you know, what does abolition look like, and what do, what do these things mean? to your organization and your advocacy as you're thinking about um, how you want to work on these issues. From the report, from the survey, over half of the participants had face-to-face -face contact with police in the past five years. So, you know, we're looking at over a thousand people who took the survey, um, you know, were able to answer questions about face-to-face -face interaction with police in the, five, in, in the past five years. 
I want to um, take a step back and, and just give you some, some context of like why we asked this question and how we asked it. Because the question about police interaction, we also also fits in the sections where we talked about have you experienced the crime? And we give different examples that people were able to choose from and, and you know, have you experienced this crime? And then we also ask, um, if you experienced crime, did you report it? And to whom did you report it? You know, and we had folks, a, a number of people who said, I did report it to the police. Or I reported it to a um, community-based organization or to a friend, or I didn't report it. And then we asked questions about, if you, if you didn't report it to the police, why didn't you report it? And what we're trying to do here, again, digging a little deeper into these interactions, is to get a sense of like, what is that experience like for someone as they're going through these different interactions? Looking at it, not just, you know, I went to the police department, but how did you feel about it? What happened? What were your expectations about it? So I, I, I'm really interested to hear from community members and organizations who, who look at the report of like, so what does this mean? How can we talk about these these issues and these findings with the work that we're doing? You know, one thing that that came out of doing this report in comparison to the 2012 report is that a lot has happened within the past decade in how our community members and then just more broadly the the general population is thinking about police violence um, with with the killing of George Floyd and countless others and and coming out of the summer of 2020, where a lot of the the movement against police violence and racial violence had LGBTQ people leading these movements, you know, and, and so when we were again, when we were thinking of this, the survey tool in the report and really the question of like, why now are we doing this um, this this survey? It's really because the way we understand the criminal legal system and policing has changed and in a way has really grown where people are talking about it a lot because a lot of us have experienced it directly, police violence directly or police misconduct directly, and we know people who have. And we're also coming out of a, a pandemic that is you know, still ongoing. And how have our ideas about community changed? How have our ideas about safety changed? So I, I really um, hope folks see this as a resource that can get you thinking about how do you want to start asking these questions and the work that you're you're doing. Well, so appreciative about your thoughts on over-policing versus policing. I know that it's been habit because of that's how this discussion has been posed for so long to just say over-policing and not even think about the implication within that, that that means there is a certain amount of policing that is appropriate and acceptable and okay. So I think for folks who are looking at the report, yes, it is a hefty 80 plus pages, but I guess don't be tempted to chop off the glossary as just something you could quickly skim through because it sounds like there's really a lot there to continue to ponder. Right, right. Uh, but but I will say we, we did try to make this as user-friendly and engaging as possible. Again, on the website, uh, protectedandserved.org, you will find the the full report that, that we released on April 20th, along with an executive summary and our spotlight report. 
The spotlight report is from the 421 participants who were detained at the time uh, they took the survey. And, and I think it both supplements and is a standalone report on, on, on the survey findings. In the coming months, we will, um, all of the, the materials will be available in Spanish. And we will have a series of fact sheets that are in development, looking at particular um, populations within our communities. So, for example, we are planning to have a fact sheet on, on sex work, where over 300 participants um, answered questions about engaging in sex work in the past. A fact sheet on, on people living with HIV. There were some really interesting findings related to HIV itself, but also this idea of how does our community think about disabilities? You know, one of the one of the interesting findings from people who had been um, detained, both people who were currently detained and just in the past had been detained, was the question that we asked it but didn't know what we would find was, had you missed medication within the past two weeks? And the number of people who wrote, yes, I had, you know, I, I missed medication or I was not given my medication was, it, it was such a high number. And it just opened up so many other questions. And, and, you know, we're thinking about if we conduct this survey again, what, what questions do we want to go deeper into? That is definitely one of them because we, for a number of the questions, we also included a space for people to give, to, to write in a response. So the survey and the report is doing both the quantitative assessment, and, and we work with some great uh, scientists on this, so this is not me knowing, knowing, knowing this stuff, um, but Strength in Numbers Consulting Group were great partners on, on this project also. The quantitative assessment, you know, the, the numbers, and you'll see the percentages and, and the data, and that's all explained in the report. And also what's called the qualitative assessment, where people wrote in um, and, and we were able to get some, some good information from people. And, and in the report, you'll see quotes directly from participants about their experiences. And so from there, you know, we have this finding about the number of people who had missed their medication and then in what people wrote in were what type of medications were, were, uh, were missed, HIV medication, horm hormones, medication related to mental health. So I think that that's one of the areas that I, I, I hope people um, want to explore more about what is it like for community members who use medications or are people living with disabilities, including HIV, including thinking about gender dysphoria as a medical condition that, that is a disability. And, and when you are in prison or jail, the impact on your, on your physical and mental health can be determined by whether or not you're getting access to your medical care. Absolutely. I know I was giving you a hard time earlier about the report being 80 pages plus, but it is very approachable. And as a lawyer, I appreciate that. I did not take statistics in college. I am not a math person by trade. And this is just laid out so beautifully in terms of the information is very digestible and you can jump right in and breeze through. Thank you, Shane, for, for, for saying that. And, and, and we really want anyone to be able to pick up the, the, the report and, and, and the other materials 
and be able to use it. Uh, we, we, we attempted to do this report in a way that speaks to multiple audiences. That if you are a community member um, who's who's interested in 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 these issues, that is something that you can pick up and you know really start thinking about uh, uh, about the, the the questions we ask and about about the experiences of our community members. If you're a policymaker or if you do legislative work, you know as as you're preparing your testimony and and you're able to cite to to a finding that's on topic, you know that can be very powerful. In, in your legislative advocacy. You know, at Lambda Legal, we do a lot of litigation, both when we're representing someone and also when we do what's called an amicus brief to the, to the court, where we're able to, you know, provide information to the court on a specific issue or legal, uh, a legal claim and dive a little deeper into it. This report will, will help support some of the arguments we're making. You know, I, I'm thinking of a brief that I worked on with my colleague, Ethan Rice, who's our senior attorney for the for our Fair Courts Project, where at the Fifth Circuit, you know, it, it was a case where a, one party who, a, a trans woman, was asking the court to update its caption with her legal name and also that she be re- referred to by um, using her correct pronouns. I think this case has become a little notorious, especially for LGBTQ advocates of how far out the Fifth Circuit panel went out of its way to talk about why they were not going to do so. You know, we looked at it from the starting point of anyone who's in court should be treated fairly and that we have a right to be treated fairly when when we're in court and that we're going to be heard by an impartial judge and, and an impartial jury. And it starts with being respected by using our correct names and, and our correct pronouns. One of the questions we asked in the two, um, 2022 survey was, have you been in court? And a number of the participants have been in, in, in court in different roles, you know, which I think speaks to just um, the reality that LGBTQ people, we go around and live our lives, you know, and, and, and so it's, it was, we asked the question like, what was your role in court? We had people who are attorneys answer. We had people who have been a party in a case, um, witnesses in a case, even judges took the survey. And then we asked about negative experiences in, in court. You know, we found that transgender people, just generally um, transgender, gender non-conforming and non-binary people, you know, exp- had a lot of experiences with being misgendered while in court. Trans women were were misgendered or responded that they, they were misgendered at higher rates than trans men. You know, I, I, I thought that was interesting. We asked questions about was your HIV status inappropriately disclosed? A number of participants said yes. Was your sexual orientation inappropriately disclosed or, um, you know, your gender identity? And it's these are the things that can have an impact on your case. And I know for a number of, of attorneys who who work with and represent LGBTQ plus folks, we sometimes have to have, uh, not just sometimes, I think we should be having these conversations with our clients, uh, preparing them with what to expect when you're in court, you know, because that could be a very harmful experience where if as soon as you get to the courthouse and you go through security and you are misgendered or you are treated differently or singled out because of you know what you're wearing or if you're 
ID card doesn't match how the security officer thinks you should look, you know, that can be an experience before you're even in court. And so, again, this is something that I hope folks um, think about of how can they incorporate this this report and the findings into just how you are doing your own practice. So crucial to prepare the client for the experience of court itself, right? Because like you said, it's very easy to be rattled before you even get upstairs and see the judge, depending on how you're treated as soon as you walk through those doors. And even if some of these issues don't necessarily negatively impact your case, it goes back to trust, right? So, and this is the time of year that we're thinking really heavily about what trust looks like in these particular institutions and, and the police as well with pride marches coming up. As I mentioned, you know, over over half of the participants of the survey had face-to-face contact with um, police in in the past five years, and we found that those who who responded that they did had not had contact with the police had more positive expectations about their their encounters with with police than those who did have contact with the police. Um, you know, one of the questions we asked was about, like, what were your expectations about those interactions? And so we were able to draw a comparison there. We found that nearly half of the participants indicated that the police engaged in some type of misconduct. Again, we had a series of choices that that people could select uh, about what that experience was was like when they interacted with with police. Um, such as you know, verbally assaulting them. We had um, 13% of the people who experienced um, police misconduct. It was sexual harassment. You know, so we these are these are major issues that undermine the trust in in um, law enforcement. You know, um, to 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 read what one of the participants wrote, and I and I quote: "As a victim, the indifference I was confronted with." from the police may have been more insidious than outright hostility, but no less traumatic than the incident itself. The participant here is talking about their experience when they went to report a crime. And again, you know, talking about reporting reporting a crime to, to police, a participant wrote, every time I have reported an incident to the police, it has been met with general disinterest, like it was a chore for them and blatant homophobia, transphobia. I even had assault dismissed by an officer as deserved. And wow. and and there were there were other participants who wrote about those experiences of reporting. And one one subsection that that's included in the report is around reporting hate incidents and also intimate partner violence. I know a number of organizations, Lambda Legal included have done work about what happens if you experience a hate incident. And I should note, we also just give a a working definition for hate incident and and not hate crime to try to explain just the the legal differences here and and how that information is is collected by by, the government. So for example, the Department of Justice, they do their report on hate crimes but their definition of a hate crime is is much more limited than what someone who actually experiences a hate incident would think is a hate crime. So we try to explain that those terms and and the legal definitions. But we wanted to get we wanted to ask like are those the type of things that people 
have recorded and how, how did they feel about it? And we found that um, you know, people have reported it to um, community-based organizations, to, to friends, to family members, to, to things not including the police which I think is, is, is a interesting finding as we are having these conversations about thinking outside of the current criminal legal system for our community safety, where do we go to for help, how do we keep each, our, ourselves um, safe. But overall, um, the findings about the police misconduct and, and trust in, in um, law enforcement and policing suggests that the negative experiences and the the police misconduct just undermines the trust of community members who have encountered the police. And again, I, I think um, looking back at the 2012 survey and things that have happened since uh, with over the past decade, you know, a number of police departments have changed their guidelines and training requirements to address anti-LGBTQ biases and, and prejudices, including, you know, here in New York, um, the NYPD, in Chicago. A lot of this was brought, these changes came because of litigation against them, because something had happened and, you know, they were, they were, the departments were sued and it led to this. And, and I know a lot of organizations were involved with um, reviewing these guidelines, having multiple meetings. But I think one qu open question is, have things changed? Did this training work? You have this great policy on paper. How is it being enforced? How are people being held accountable? And I think the answer is it's not happening. It's, it, you know, that the accountability piece is missing or it's not being funded and there aren't resources given, being given to, to hold these, these actors who have engaged in, in misconduct accountable. You know, we have civilian complaint review boards. We have agencies that are not housed within the police department. We still have in, in some places where the, the folks who are investigating whether misconduct happened are still within the police department. So I think that a lot more work has to happen there. And we need to start thinking of oversight and accountability as actual tools that can that that can be used, and not just things that we um, push for as, as part of reform. You know, there has to be accountability here to actually stop these negative uh, behaviors and, and the misconduct. Well, this sounds like kind of the perfect segue to continue into recommendations, right? Because this is where I hear a shift in the conversation. The recommendations in the report are not just limited to police departments and the criminal legal system itself. Could you take us a little bit further into some of the other non-legal recommendations that were included? Sure. And and one of the one of the things we try to do with with the report and speaking to different audiences is to to put ourselves in the shoes of someone who picks up this report. You know. I, I think one way to, to read the report also is to, is to approach it that way. What are these different interactions I have? Uh, what, are, what are the different experiences either I had or, or I'm hearing about or I'm reading about um, in the report? And how do we stop it? How do we change it? And so we, we, we frame the recommendations as, as a series of things that community members, policymakers, advocates, 
people who work within the criminal legal system, things that they can do. And we also acknowledge that someone can have multiple hats on and that these different, these different actors should really be speaking to each other and working with each other and supporting each other. And some of the work, you know, um, could be parallel to each other. There could be different principles behind it. Even our partnership with, um, with Black and Pink National, I hope is an example of that. You know, Lambda Legal, we're an organization who uses litigation and um, policy advocacy as tools and work within this system. Black and Pink National, they are a prison abolitionist organization. I think in general, we have the same goals of how do we keep our community members safe so that we can thrive, so that we can you know, live good, healthy, <laughs> happy lives. Our tactics and our principles might be different, but I think we should be having those conversations with, with each other in, in taking these steps. So in, in the recommendations, we do have some, um, some concrete things that folks can do. Attend a bystander interve intervention training program. Organizations like the Anti-Violence Project um, offer these type of trainings really thinking about how do how do we teach people how to disrupt violence effectively you know here in new york there there are a number of stories and 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 the recent um killing um of someone on the on the subway train you know it's it's symptomatic of the problems that we have in in our city and in our country that we some people believe that is okay you know, that, that violence is used to the point of killing someone um, as, as a way to, I, I don't know, I, I can't speak for, for the person who, who did this, um, but I, I think it, it's in the news and unfortunately other forms of violence are just the, 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 the nightly headlines, you know, of, of people protesting um, drag story hour the increased violence against LGBTQ people in our community spaces, our clubs, our, the places we gather, that we, we should be looking at ways to keep ourselves safe. And the uh, bystander intervention training is one of the resources. We encourage folks to explore transformative justice practices. Um, this might be a, a new term for people and, 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 and a new idea. Uh, we, we give some resources on, on places to, to look, um, including um, transformharm.org is a, is a resource. And, and, and you know, at the, at, the, at the foundation of this is really knowing your rights. You know, attend Know Your Rights training. Um, check out Lambda Legal's website. Check out the um, Legal's website, you know, and other um, legal organizations. Some concrete things are support the de decriminalization of sex work as an LGBTQ issue and support the decriminalization of HIV. You know, we, uh, both in the report and in the, the spotlight report, we, we hear from people who are detained or, or um, in prisons and jails. And, and the full report also includes uh, people who are in immigration facilities or in juvenile facilities. We should be thinking of this. How do we keep people out of these <laughs> out of the system? And one way is to repeal some of these um, discriminatory laws that um, I would argue are unconstitutional laws, to, so that people aren't going into the system to begin with. Which you know, 
we're talking about this survey as we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of the Lawrence v. Texas case, which I think is such a great example of when you have these discriminatory and unconstitutional laws on the books, even if they're not being enforced you know, in high rates, the threat of, of using them is felt. You know, the these uh, sodomy laws uh, were used to 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 justify firing LGBTQ people because we were seen as criminals. It was used in family law cases that, you know, uh, an LGBTQ person shouldn't have custody of their kids because they're criminals. And then in, in the Lawrence case itself, uh, where um, Lambda Legal was counsel in this case, you know, it was about police misconduct, about police, you know, coming into the, the, the home and, and arresting them and then seeing how the criminal legal process worked out. I mean, this case went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And I think it's really one of the most important LGBTQ cases because it spoke to our dignity and to our liberty and, and you know, for our, our, our liberty of engaging in really in, in sex. You know, uh, so if we're thinking about the after effects of interacting with police, of, of prisons, of courts, I think we, we also must think about how do we challenge unjust laws? How do we keep people from even having to, to go into these systems? And so those are um, some concrete things. Also, you know, supporting transgender nonconforming and non-binary led movements. As I mentioned earlier, you know, what we have seen with, with the movements against police violence and racial violence is how involved LGBTQ people and LGBTQ people of color and, and Black LGBTQ people specifically have been leading these movements, have been organizing, have been doing things about like during during the pandemic, how do we feed each other? How do we keep each other in our homes? You know, so there's so much creative and just good energy that's there that we should be supporting our community members with uh, with resources by giving them space, by supporting their spaces. You know, I think we we have to stop thinking of the LGBTQ movement as so monolith and focused on only some issues, because what happens is we push out people, we don't listen to the community, and then we go around saying, well, you know, we have to do this for the most vulnerable, the most marginalized. That's not how I see our community. You know, I, I'm a, I'm a brown, brown gay man, you know, uh, I, I, and, and, I cannot separate my multiple identities when I'm doing this work. And I hope it's something that I bring to the work because I know sometimes in some of these spaces, I might be the only one who's not white. And I can talk about what does racism do to our community? How can we prioritize fighting against racism if people of color are not even in these rooms having these conversations? And it's, it's, very much in the same way when we are facing an onslaught of attacks against trans and um, gender nonconforming and non-binary people, you know, for example, 500 plus legislative bills um, have been introduced in, within this, this past session. If transgender nonconforming and non-binary folks are not leading 
are leading us on these issues, you know, and, and it's, it's something that I know a number of organizations are trying to um, address, but I think it has to be foundational to the work that we're doing that we, in the fight for LGBTQ equality and fighting for people living with HIV, that it's fundamental that we are working against white supremacy and racism and transphobia, homophobia, and biphobia. Yeah, and we've spoken about how you can't separate these things in other contexts, right? We've spoken particularly around the book bans that the legislation that we see attacking books in educational institutions are not just attacking books that talk about LGBTQ people or topics are also talking about books that talk about race or racism. And they're also talking about books that talk about gender. So you uh, thank you for that reminder that you really cannot wear only one of these hats in the movement. This is the peak state legislative season, right? We're, we're waiting to see, we're, well, waiting to make it sound like it's more positive than it is. We're scared <laughs> to see what's going to happen in the last couple of weeks of the state house legislative sessions across the country. Do you want to take a few minutes to kind of talk about some of the bills that are pending here in New York? Uh, sure. And and if, if I could just add to to what you were saying about the these bills um, relating to, to banning books and, you know, we're, we're seeing it um, happening in states across the country that uh, not only is there book banning, but people are being vigilantes about it. You know, there's book burning is happening in the United States right now. Armed people are showing up to libraries because of drag story hour. You know, there, there, is, there is so much happening right now that it's easy to, to lose track of like what Horrible, horrible bill is now happening. I, I think one way to, to think about it is it's happening everywhere. What are we going to do about it? And, you know, Lambda Legal, we're, we're involved in so many court cases right now all across the country. And we're also involved with supporting positive our um, legislation that could help our community and fighting back against um, legislation that, that is harmful, that is based in um, transphobia and, uh, and, and uh, you know, trying to do what we can to support the community members on the ground who are, who are also working to, to defeat these bills. And I should mention as, as, as we're talking about the criminal legal system, just the increase in use of criminal laws or, or trying to pass criminal laws in all of these areas of our lives, this is really the criminalization of LGBTQ people all over again. You know, I mentioned Lawrence v. Texas, that was only 20 years ago, and we're still seeing the insidious ways that legislators are coming up with ways to criminalize us. We know that young trans and non-binary people, their family and, and their healthcare providers are facing bills that will criminalize their access to healthcare. You know, um, there are bills that are talking about reporting trans people using the bathroom. You know, I, I, I know um, Lambda Legal and our, our sibling organizations did so much just a few years ago to fight back against these bathroom bills because it was another way that the state was using the criminal system to target our community members and, 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 and the harm that it will cause. So I, I do think if, if, again, if you are an organization who works on all of these issues and are like, 
well, you know, we don't really work on the criminal legal system. I want to challenge you to think about, yes, you do, because it's the criminal law, it's the policing, it's the surveillance of our community members that they are trying to codify in a number of these laws. And we have to see this connection because our community member is already surveilled and policed and incarcerated at such high rates that this is only going to 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 make things even more dangerous for for our community members. One of one of the the bills that um, Lambda Legal has been working on for some time with a, a great coalition in New York State is the Gender Identity Respect um, Dignity and Safety Act, um, the GERDS Act. This relates to the um, housing and treatment of transgender, gender nonconforming, non-binary, and intersex people who are in um, the New York State prison system and also the, the local jail system. Um, New York has uh, two, two separate systems. But at, at, at its base, what it does is it deals with housing designations of, of people that the, the presumptive housing should be based on someone's gender identity and, and keeping them safe. We know that sometimes those decisions are made based on um, your anatomy where they they ask and check what anatomy you have, you know, uh, which is also just sexual violence and violence against our community in 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 checking that that what is on your ID card might you know if your gender marker has not been changed that they will say well I have to do this because it's what's on on your ID card even if you know, you're a trans woman and they are placing you in a men's facility and you talk about the danger that you, that you will face. We have been working with, with the coalition for some time now in helping the, the assembly sponsor, um, Rosic, and the Senate sponsor, um, Salazar, in, in, in working on this bill. Uh, working with community members, um, hearing from people directly impacted who are formerly incarcerated, hearing from people who are currently incarcerated or detained, um, and trying to create this bill that is really comprehensive on not only the housing issue, but also related to treatment and access to medical care that is already protected under the Constitution and under you know state and federal laws, but it's not being enforced. And again, I think this is where we go back to how accountability and enforcement are so important. And it's like, how do we make that happen? You know, and I, I think GERDS is, is, is a bill that when passed will address a number of these harms so that we're not having to go back to court for each person who is being denied medical care. And, and you know, which is currently, you know, what has been happening for decades that um, you know, we're able to get a big win on behalf of our clients, and the systems make some changes, but then it goes back to the enforcement of it, of whether or not this is going to continue, or is someone who has been denied um, gender-affirming care, they might have access to some care, but the next people who are coming in won't be able to get it without having to go through this long process themselves. So it's it's called um, the GERDS Act. I, I encourage folks to um, take a look at it and if you are interested in, in supporting it, um, to, to reach out to, um, to, you can reach out to me at Lambda Legal, 
um, the New York Civil Liberties Union um, has been doing a lot of work around this, uh, the Legal Aid Society, Bronx Defenders, it's a really great coalition of, of folks working on, on this bill. I also want to mention the um, Stop Violence and the Sex Trade Act. This is a bill that would um, decriminalize sex work in New York State. I, um, I think it's an important bill um, that, that advocates have been working on for some time. You know, it's related to the, the, the fact that LGBTQ people and looking at um, trans women are targeted and um, arrested at high rates for engaging in sex work. And, and as we were uh, talking about earlier, like one way to address some of these issues with, with the criminal legal system is to change or get rid of some of these laws that are discriminatory and have this disparate impact on our community members. If you had to kind of wave your magic wand in terms of with the recommendations, what we can do as individuals, as attorneys, and as a bar association, where would you like to see the bar association get more involved? If I had a magic wand, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, I think it's a great question. And I think it's one where the Bar Association, you all have great expertise and um, you have just really, really smart people uh, involved with the Bar Association that it's speaking to the policymakers and the judges and people who work in court about here's the law, here are things to change, here are ways you know, to enforce policies in your courthouse that will help root out you know, any discrimination or bias. And I know we're talking about um, anti-LGBTQ bias and discrimination, but again, it's not, you can't separate it from um, racist policies or uh, you know, things that, that policies that impact people because of how much money they have. You know, so I would encourage us to be, um, think bigger um, with when we are having these conversations with policymakers and stuff like, yes, my issue is as, as a gay man is around LGBTQ issues. But as I said earlier, as a, as a Latino, I can't think of, you know, my issues as so siloed, you know, so it, it's doing, thinking about things that way. And it wouldn't stop there. Because if you're having these conversations with policymakers and judges and people who work in the courts, I think it's also our responsibility is that we are going to our community and we are speaking with directly with our, our community and being informed and seeing it more as like we're working together. Not that I'm like bringing this information to you. It's really, you are also the experts of your lived experiences and, and your lives. So how can we use that to get better changes, better policies, and, and work to hold people accountable when you, as an attorney, are having conversations with these different, different groups? And I think it's also important that we can't forget that we are also part of the community. You know, I, I think one of the things I really appreciate about being a, a member of, of, of um, the LGBT bar is that I can be my full self when I'm when I'm at work and when I'm you know um, meeting with community members, you know when I'm out with, at at events when I'm in court that I get to be my full self and and I think we 
we should embrace and really value that about um, who we are, our identities, and the work we do, and know that we have support through the Bar Association um, in being, being able to do so. Well, I know a number of our sibling LGBTQ plus bar associations are listeners of the podcast. So I look forward to hearing from many of you and following up on this to think about how we can all continue to work together. So I, I think you may have already answered this question, but I would be remiss if I didn't ask. You spoke earlier about the access to medication being a really surprising finding of the report. Was that the, was that the most surprising finding of the report? I wanted to ask you that before I let you go. What was the most surprising thing you found out through this process? A, a, a few things, and, and I'm going to do the lawyer thing where it's going to be a multi-part answer. Uh, <laughs> I, I was very surprised that we were intentional about reaching out to community members that are not always included in these type of surveys and getting the response um, from, for example, 23% of all of the participants are people living with HIV. At Lambda Legal, um, fighting on behalf of LGBTQ people and people living with HIV has been, you know, core to our work. You know, Lambda, we're celebrating our 50th anniversary and, you know, HIV has been with us for, for 40 plus years now, but it's always been core to the work that Lambda Legal is doing. And to have that response rate, um, I was um, very, very happy with that. I do think we, we want to do more in hearing from folks who are, um, who might not be part of the LGBTQ community that are living with HIV and, and hear about the, those experiences also. As I mentioned earlier, we worked with, in developing the survey tool, folks who are sex work uh, workers or uh, sex worker advocates in, in coming up with questions that um, would be helpful for them to know. And, and I think as you read the report and the um, forthcoming fact sheet, um, that there are some there are some interesting findings that I, that I think will be helpful for people who, who um, are doing advocacy in this space about the interactions with police. Um, the fact that folks still experience um, the use of condoms as evidence in, 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 um, in their interactions with, with the legal system. But I will say um, to, to answer your, your, your question, I do think it was the, the um, mismedication and, and the reason why is because it's sometimes not part of the story we tell about LGBTQ people in prison um, or in jails that we see disability and uh, access to medical care in, 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 in different ways. We don't, we, a lot of my work in prison litigation is about access to healthcare for for people who have gender dysphoria, you know, and we have talked about it like this is gender affirming care and it's getting access to hormone therapy, it's getting access to commissary items, it's, you know, getting surgical intervention. But my clients usually have other medical conditions that are not being addressed. <laughs> You know, and, and for um, people who are in prisons, um, there, there are medical conditions and mental health conditions that are not being addressed, you know, and, and, and these have to also fit into the conversation we're having about healthcare for people. And 
we also, when we are having the larger discussion about access to healthcare for LGBTQ people, we can't forget the people who are incarcerated as part of those discussions. So I think that finding just really um, got to me because I, I it, it showed me just how many of our community members are living with medical conditions or mental health conditions and, and need uh, medication. But we can't forget we are still in a global pandemic, you know, and, and you know, for the past three years where we have talked so much about healthcare, the fact that people are being denied healthcare or facing these extreme barriers to getting healthcare uh, while incarcerated and also just the, all of the legislative attacks against our community around healthcare, that these are issues that anyone talking about healthcare must talk about LGBTQ people and our, and our access to healthcare and our right to healthcare, our right to be healthy. And then I will say just uh, uh, from a legal perspective, it, it just really has me thinking about how we talk about um, and bring claims around access to healthcare. You know, um, one one um, interesting um, our our new um, legal issue that has come up, and and I really invite um, folks listening to the podcast and and community members to continue to engage in this conversation is how do we talk about gender dysphoria um, as, as a medical condition in terms of access or, or using the Americans with Disabilities Act in as a legal claim. Um, there was a Fourth Circuit case, Williams v. Kincaid, that dealt with someone who was in a jail, again, seeing how the 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 issues impacting um, detained people have this broader um, impact where where the Fourth Circuit held that um, gender dysphoria is not excluded from protections of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And I think all of these things are connected and they show the need for all of us to really be talking to each other. It helps us strategize of how do we bring certain claims. It keeps us updated on new information and new legal advancements. And it needs to be informed directly by our community members who are most impacted. Well, I would love to have an entirely separate conversation around access to healthcare. That could be a whole hour and a fascinating hour in and of itself. Uh, so thank you for bringing that back into the picture. And we have discussed the Fourth Circuit case that you were discussing on some of the prior yep. Lawless episodes. So I hope our listeners will go back and, and check those out as well. Any kind of final thoughts to wrap up our hour today? Well, I I, I always like to share, um, especially as we're coming up on, on Pride season, that I, I was born on June 28th. So I, I feel like I, I've always been involved in, in this work <laughs> and um, in, in writing the report and going through all of the, the, the survey responses and, 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 and reading um, what, what people had wrote um, to some of the questions. And then thinking about the work that Lambda Legal does and has been doing for, as I said, 50 years, we owe a lot to people who have been impacted by the criminal legal system. I talked about Lawrence v. Texas, in my opinion, probably the most important LGBTQ rights case that was decided by the Supreme Court, and that was 20 years ago. 
And from there, you know, we soon had the, the, the number of cases around marriage equality, uh, both at the state level and in federal courts. And, um, you know, ultimately with the Obergefell um, case um, dealing with marriage equality. And then, you know, the, the Bostock decision dealt with um, you know, a, a statute, but, um, you know, was about, you know, protections from, from discrimination. And I think right now we're, we're facing the, the backlash of it, that the other side is very well-organized, well-resourced, millions and millions of dollars are coming in. Um, the courts have become very hostile to us. We, last year, you know, the Supreme Court in, in the Dobbs decision, not only is it an attack on uh, um, people who can become pregnant and um, the right to bodily autonomy, but it showed how fragile our rights can be. And I think as a movement, we can't forget our history. Um, I mentioned Dobbs and of course, related to Roe v. Wade and um, the Casey decision, and I mentioned Lawrence, and, and if you look at it, all of these were, were built on each other. And so that, that's one point. And then the second is in, in doing work on behalf of, of incarcerated people, there's an unsung hero who we often don't talk about her case in the, when, when we talk about important LGBTQ cases, Dee Farmer um, was in the Federal Bureau of Prison System, and, and her case, uh, Farmer D. Brennan, was decided in 1994, and she was the first out trans person to have her case at the Supreme Court. And the, the significance of her, her case was it established what's called the deliberate indifference standard in, in Eighth Amendment violations. And um, her case dealt with with safety and and being um, attacked while while in in custody, uh, but that same standard also applies to uh, medical care cases and access to medical care while while incarcerated. Miss D is out. She is, um, you know, she's she's still with us. And I hope that um, that as as a movement, we recognize the importance of of her case and also the importance of of supporting people who who are who are incarcerated. Um, so I, I think from talking about pride to talking about prisons, it, it kind of that's how I how I think about stuff. And and I hope um, for folks who who are interested and do check out the report that it it gets you to start thinking about these issues too, and that you and that you share it with your uh, with your colleagues and your community members. Um, you could get it at uh, protectedandserved.org. Um, um, you can follow Lambda Legal on social media uh, for for updates. And this Pride season, um, let's let's be joyful. Let's find those things that make us happy and um, take care of each other and really just support and be there for each other too. Yeah, I, I know what you mean about how quickly the rights can be taken away. I was actually pregnant last summer when the Dobbs decision dropped, and that drastically impacted how I saw myself and how I interacted with the world and I how I traveled or didn't, frankly, didn't travel last year because of so afraid of 
complications and not being able to get healthcare if I basically if I left the state of New York. So I, I think it's important that in this season, when we are thinking about all the joy of pride, that we are also mindful about how quickly these rights can be taken away and that the fight is far from over. Well, Richard, thank you so much for joining us today. And again, to read the report or the executive summary, feel free to visit protectedandserve.org. Thank you as always to our listeners. Please like, share, and continue to find us on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite programs.